Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson. Tonight, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addresses Australia's parliament. Geography doesn't matter. What matters is humanity and the dream. The dream of bringing back a peaceful life. The dream that we will implement together. Thank you, Australia. Slava Ukraini. Also, damage assessments underway as another flood disaster unfolds. Recovery coordinator Mal Lanyon joins PM. The tragedy is that a number of people had already well and truly recommenced to clean up and we'd done a lot of work to actually clean through properties as well so that people could start to return to them. So um, it's just a tragedy that people have had to go through this again. And Parliament legalises a controversial IVF treatment to prevent mitochondrial disease. It's called Maeve's Law, after a girl living with a disorder. For them to have an opportunity to basically make that choice as to whether or not they they want to have a family and they want to have a healthy family, um, to us that's the most satisfying thing. It won't make a difference for Maeve, um, but Maeve will now have made a difference for other families in future. Thanks for your company. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been addressing parliaments across the world, pushing for more support as the Russian invasion of his country continues. Tonight, it was Australia's turn, and he had this warning. The most terrible thing, if we don't stop Russia now, if we don't hold Russia accountable, then some other countries of the world who are looking forward to the similar war against their neighbours will decide that such things are possible for them as well. The fate of the global security is decided now. That's the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. For more on his address, reporter Isabel Masali joins us now. Isabel Take us through what the president told the Australian parliament. So Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said to the Australian parliament, Ukraine and Australia are separated by oceans, but they needed to work together to protect democracy. And as you heard there, he warned that there could be ramifications across the globe if this wasn't resolved. He thanked Australia for its support so far, but he pleaded for more, saying this is only the beginning Here's what he had to say. The bipartisan support of Australia, of Ukraine, for the support that has been provided, we are extremely grateful. 70,000 tonnes of coal for our energy. But this is only the beginning. Together, we, should, we can and should do more. We need new sanctions against Russia, powerful sanctions, until they stop blackmailing other countries with their nuclear missiles, and they have to pay the highest price for blocking the sea. No Russian vessel should be allowed in other international ports. Buying their oil means paying for the destruction of the global security. We have to stop any business activity of Russia. Any dollar should be spent for the destruction of the people. No single dollar. So one of the other things he asked for is for Australia's Bushmaster armoured vehicles that Australia has in its armoury. He also made comments on the downing of MH17. He said that the unpunished evil of the 2014 shooting down of the plane has led to the invasion of Ukraine and if stronger action had been taken at the time against Russia, things would have been different. 
Yeah, very interesting, uh, that request for Bushmaster vehicles. We'll see uh, where that one ends up. Australia is, though, of course, offering more help to Ukraine with more military support and new economic sanctions against Russia. Yes, so right before the Ukrainian president spoke, Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced an extra $25 million worth of defensive military assistance, and that includes rations and medical supplies, along with tactical decoys, unmanned aerial and unmanned ground systems. So this brings Australia's military assistance to $116 million worth so far, along with the $65 million of humanitarian assistance and 70,000 tonnes of thermal coal for for energy needs in Ukraine. Earlier today, the federal government also announced it will ramp up economic sanctions with a new 35% tariff to be applied to all imports from Russia and Belarus, and that will come into effect on the same day the Russian oil ban begins. Both leaders stood in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Here's Scott Morrison. We stand with you, Mr President, and we do not stand with the war criminal of Moscow, Mr President. I know that man, you know that man, we know that man, Mr Speaker, and we know his regime. We have seen them unleash unspeakable horror against your children, your hospitals and the shelters. You are fighting for your country and your people. You are fighting for your own family. We are here to hear, we are here to hear your words. So let me conclude with the words that resound amongst democratic and freedom-loving peoples the world over. Slava Ukraina. That's the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, Isabel Musali, reporting. Australia's additional sanctions and military assistance to Ukraine come at a pivotal point in the conflict, with UK intelligence officials reporting low morale within the Russian camp, and President Zelensky claiming Russian forces have retreated from the capital, Kiev, to ramp up assaults in the east of the country. There's also finally some hope for thousands of civilians seeking to escape the besieged city of Mariupol. Oliver Gordon reports. In the besieged port city of Mariupol in Ukraine's southeast, residents push shopping trolleys full of bottled water back to what remains of their homes. They pass resident Pavel, who has constructed a makeshift grave on a busy street. On March 16, our friend was driving a car and a bullet got him right in the throat. Five minutes later, the man was gone. Pavel is farewelling his friend in prayer and has fashioned a makeshift cross out of two planks of wood. He doesn't know where he'll go next. Everything we had is gone now. Am I going to leave? No, I got nothing to go by, nobody to go with. I have somewhere to go, but I probably won't make it there. The attacks on Mariupol have been all but relentless since the conflict in Ukraine broke out, and many who remained in the city are now homeless. Russian President Vladimir Putin has proposed a one-day ceasefire in the city for people to travel westwards. Military analyst Mick Ryan says Ukrainians are right to remain sceptical. We know exactly how the previous ceasefires have been honoured, so uh, we should watch what the Russians do, not what they say. I think, as one American said, don't trust but verify when the Russians make these kind of promises. Despite Russia's pledge to reduce its activity in the northern regions of Ukraine, around the capital, Kiev, 
fighting has continued across much of the country. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia is moving its forces away from the capital, Kyiv, to prepare for new strikes in the east of the country. He says this is proof his military has defended Kyiv and Cherniv. We know that this is not a withdrawal, but the consequence of exile, the consequences of the work of our defenders. But at the same time, we see the accumulation of Russian troops for new strikes in Donbass. We're getting ready for this. With any credible claims of Russian victory fading, military analyst Major General Mick Ryan says Moscow is retreating east to save face. Well, the Russians for some time now have been seeking an alternate theory of victory, a way that they can say to the world that um, they've achieved something in Ukraine. It's not going to happen around Kiev. It's not going to happen in the south now that they've been halted well short of Odessa. It is going to happen in the east around Donbass, which was one of their original war aims. How likely is it that uh, they will actually be able to take that Donbass region and uh, claim it as something like a victory? It's going to take a fair bit of reorganisation and reinforcements in that area for them to have any chance at it. Uh, It is a large piece of land. It is a piece of land that they haven't been able to take since 2014, but it is closer to Russia and potentially closer to their logistic lines than, say, their northern or southern advances. That said, Russian track record with command, leadership, combined arms and the integration of air and land operations in this war so far has been awful. They're going to have to improve that a lot to make any significant progress in the east. As Russian troops reconcentrate their efforts, intelligence reports from the UK have suggested morale on the front line is low. At a talk at the Australian National University, Britain's spy chief Jeremy Fleming shared unconfirmed intelligence reports. We've seen Russian soldiers, short of weapons and morale, refusing to carry out orders, sabotaging their own equipment and even accidentally shooting down their own aircraft. And even though we believe Putin's advisers are afraid to tell him the truth, what's going on and the extent of these misjudgments must be crystal clear to the regime. Whilst shocking, Major General Mick Ryan says the reports should be taken with a grain of salt. We've seen this for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, The reports of troops shooting down their own aircraft, uh, we'd like to probably see more evidence before we could say those kind of reports are verified. So what is being claimed here is actually not that unusual for a military organisation that is being unsuccessful in warfare. Though the Major General, who has been watching each stage of the war closely, is certain on one thing. The Russian military is not the Russian military that a lot of people thought it was before this war began. That's military analyst Major General Mick Ryan ending that report by Oliver Gordon. You're listening to PM on radio on the ABC Listen app and via podcast. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, the arts community in shock over budget cuts outlined on Tuesday night. Without government funding, as there is for most industries in the country, it's really hard to innovate and develop your craft and go to that next level and reach international markets. Residents of Lismore in northern New South Wales, already weary from the toll of destructive floods just a few weeks ago, 
are again assessing the damage of this week's deluge. The water is finally receding and locals returning to their properties are finding more mud, debris and water damage. As the daunting clean-up and recovery process begins again, communities are nervously watching the skies and the weather forecast for the days and weeks ahead. Sarah Sedgi reports. When the first floods hit a few weeks back, not a single home was left untouched in the caravan park Sis Hughes runs with her family in Loftville, close to Lismore. When the water was coming up that second time, yeah, the morale was quite low, but, you know, when it did peak and it didn't get through the park, we were all cheering and we are all, you know, pretty happy and everyone takes it in turns, lifting each other up and you've got to make light heart of, what's happened sometimes. While she's feeling relieved these floods didn't reach the caravan park again, she knows there's a lot of work ahead. Rebuilding has barely even started because of the relentless rain. Just trying to get rid of all of the stuff that's unsalvageable, even just trying to see what what is salvageable. We can't even see it because it's raining. It's windy, nothing's drying out, um, and it's getting to the point where... It's very toxic to go into, like you pretty much need a hazmat suit to get into it. She's also worried about the people who can't afford to replace what they've lost. But she says the community is doing everything it can to get each other through the crisis. We've had plenty of food dropped to us, you know, the Army's been great with that, SES has been great, even just the community dropping us supplies, donations from up north have come down. Oh, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> um, well, if I sort of got down off the steps, I could go for a swim if I wanted to swim with the leeches. Um, but, uh, yeah. Catherine Moroni lives in Korokai, south of Lismore, where the Richmond and Wilson's rivers meet. She thinks the floodwaters will enter her house again, but was more prepared this time. There is a lot of people that have been through so much devastation already and were trying to come back. There was a lot of people that had just started to filter back from evacuation homes and things like that. And now to go through it all again, we've, we've never had a situation like this. Um, in the time that I've lived here, my husband grew up in Korokai. His parents always talked about having floods. There was, I think, the 54, there was three in a row. And I think he sort of starts to think, and I know there's a lot of the older folk in town, are we are we going to be having a similar situation to the 54 where is it possible we're going to get another one because they are predicting us to still have quite wet weather for another couple of months now. Jim McCormack lives nearby and was also surprised to see another flood hit the region so soon. We all thought this current flood that we're experiencing wouldn't be as bad and then we had that rain bomb the night before last that dropped over 275 mil of rain in our area up to 400 mil in some places and that changed everything because it just turned the whole thing around and we realised we were in for a, a serious flood one more time. So why are communities already hit by recent and destructive floods in the midst of another disaster? Steve Turton is an adjunct professor of environmental geography at Central Queensland University. Normally we've got in, in southern Australia, which includes the area we're looking at, We've got fairly mobile weather systems that move from west to east and they're, they're pushed along by the jet stream. So the jet streams are really important for pushing these weather systems through. Which So that means when it rains somewhere, it only does so for a fairly short period of time. 
because the, the systems are moving quite, you know, they're quite mobile. When we get a blocking system, they, they can occur in the bite but they, and, and also in the Tasman Sea, that effectively prevents any of the weather systems from um, moving across. So in fact, they all get diverted underneath. They, they get deflected to the south. And that's kind of what happened with this, the blocking event we had last month, where we had a, a low pressure system sitting over the Queens, southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales, enhanced by a very um, strong upper cutoff low. And it just sat put for about a week. There was just nowhere for, for the system to go. It was being blocked by the high in New Zealand. And as a consequence, it delivered huge amounts of rain uh, over a fairly large area and led to the floods that we, we've seen, particularly in Lismore, but also up in Gympie as well uh, in Queensland. But this time, Lismore has had a second round of heavy rain caused by a very similar system. The SES says the Wilsons and Richmond Rivers have now reached their peak at most at-risk communities. Sarah said you're reporting for the past month, as you just heard, thousands of workers have been clearing mud and debris from homes and properties in New South Wales. Now, devastatingly, for many of the locals, the mess has returned and now an even bigger clean-up effort is required. The New South Wales Police Deputy Commissioner Mal Lanyon is coordinating the recovery mission. Deputy Commissioner, thanks for your time. Can you just give us an update on the situation there in northern New South Wales right now? You certainly. I'm actually in charge of recovery, so I've been very much focused um, for the past few weeks on ensuring that the community is able to restore amenity. Uh, we're well and truly aware there was a significant flood event approximately four weeks ago, and then unfortunately and tragically for the community, we've just recently this week had a further flood event, which has actually set back recovery and just means that we need to double down to make sure we support the community. In what way has it set back the recovery? Only in so far that we were working at speed to actually support the community. Uh, there's been a number of priorities for me as the recovery coordinator. One of those has been clean-up. Uh, we've actually had 16,500 truckloads of waste taken to the waste exchange stations, so that was working at pace. Restoration of utilities and communications has been another key focus. When the initial uh, flood event happened, we had about 18 communities up in the northern region that had issues with supply of utilities and communications, and fortunately with communications, we had them all restored within a period of days. Certainly access and resupply as you can imagine, in some of those communities, they're not necessarily on the main roads. So we've had to make sure that we could resupply, make sure people were fed and make sure we could restore access to them. And then obviously emergency accommodation for those that couldn't go back to their own homes. So on some of those like waste, for example, communications, you know, is the waste back? Are people's homes covered in mud again and are communications knocked out again? And that's obviously the impact of the most recent flood events. So probably the easiest way for me to say in terms of the clean-up, we've had to pause the clean-up for up to 48 hours at this stage just to ensure safety for those people that are doing the clean-up. But obviously, we've had such a significant inundation that it's simply unsafe to go there. So it'll be about waiting now for some of these waters to recede so that we can do an assessment of what needs to happen. Mm. Plus, there are a number of other suburbs that have now been affected that weren't previously, um, such as really Byron Bay and areas up in that northern region that weren't really significantly impacted the first time. Have you got the manpower to deal with this new inundation and, and new areas being inundated? We absolutely do. Because we'd worked so hard and so quickly after the first event and because we'd made such progress in terms of those communities that were initially affected, 
we're able to actually switch resources now to make sure that we both finish the first roll. So Lismore City being such a large city, we're approximately 60% through the cleanup, so we can switch more resources to there. And we can also deploy further resources up into that northern area, up into the Byron Bay um, area of the community. We've still got about 3,500 ADF personnel assisting, and they've been a fantastic support to us in both the cleanup and obviously restoration of community. Are there any communities, you know, we're always a bit conscious, sometimes there are smaller communities that get a little ignored at these times. We, we know a lot about Lismore, we know a lot about Byron Bay. Are there any others that we should be talking about that we're not? We've done a lot of work since the initial tragedy happened to ensure that we're able to restore and make access to those communities that are sort of further afield or smaller or just away from the larger populated centres. So that access has occurred. We're making sure, obviously, through ADF, deploying ADF personnel or deploying police even on foot into some of those remote communities that we're actually touching base with each of them to make sure that at least we understand what their needs are and we're servicing them. Deputy Commissioner Mal Lanyon, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. That's the New South Wales Flood Recovery Coordinator, Mal Lanyon. Federal Parliament has given the green light to a groundbreaking and controversial IVF technology to prevent the deadly genetic disorder mitochondrial disease. The bill is dubbed Maeve's Law, named after a little girl suffering from the debilitating disorder, and it passed through the Senate after a late-night debate overnight. Affected families say the law offers hope the heartbreaking disorder can be eradicated, while religious groups argue the technology raises serious ethical concerns. Here's John Daly. Senators debated late into the night, touching on the sanctity of life and religious belief. Ultimately, lawmakers passed the bill legalising a procedure that offers hope for families affected by mitochondrial disease, a deadly genetic disorder. Mave's law bill passed 37 to 17 in the Senate without amendments late last night. By the Minister be agreed to, those of that opinion say aye. Against, I believe the eyes have it. The bill is named after Mavehood, a little girl living with the rare but debilitating disorder that will eventually take her life. Her father, Joel Hood, still can't believe it passed. But for Maeve, obviously, to have a legacy um, when she does leave us, it's really special. And I think just having the opportunity to be able to tell our story um, to try and help, I suppose, future generations, it's... It's for us, um, I think we're just in a bit of disbelief still, to be honest. Mitochondrial DNA disease is a genetic disorder passed on by the mother, affecting mitochondria, the cells in our body that produce energy. The disorder stops these power cells from working properly, and eventually whole organ systems fail. Recent Australian studies suggest about 1 in 200 people will carry a mitochondrial genetic defect, and about 50 babies are born each year with the disease. Maeve's law will take steps towards legalising mitochondrial DNA donation. Murdoch Children's Research Institute professor David Thorburn explained how it works. Yes, so mitochondrial donation is effectively allowing to take mum's genes from her egg, her nuclear genes that encode nearly everything in one's body, uh, and to take them out of that egg, put them into a, a donor egg with a healthy mitochondrial DNA background, so uh, from which the donor's nuclear genes have been removed. And that means that the child that um, is hopefully born from that egg will not suffer from mitochondrial DNA disease because there's healthy mitochondrial DNA from a donor. 
the technology has raised a range of ethical concerns among mainly religious groups. In submissions, they've raised questions about whether the donor should be considered to be a parent, whether a child has the right to know the genetic contributors, and whether the technology could inadvertently be used for other things. These concerns also featured in passionate debate in the Senate from the likes of New South Wales Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill. My conscience on these matters that we are debating about the sanctity of human life are informed by the great uh, theological tradition, the language and the, the uh, practices and beliefs of the Catholic faith. But there are people of no faith who also share these views about the protection of human life and embryos. There's also some ethical concerns from within the scientific community. University of New South Wales bioethicist Jackie Leach Scully says those fears relate to human gene manipulation. Many people are concerned that this takes us another step towards the genetic manipulation of human beings. But it does mean that parts of the existing law around genetic manipulation of human beings will have to be modified to allow for mitochondrial uh, replacement technology. And so some people, as I say, are concerned that this is the beginning of a slippery slope. Supporters of the bill say there will be strict safeguards in place and only couples who have mitochondrial disease in the family will be allowed to access the technology under strict supervision. And while it's too late for Joel Hood's daughter, Maeve, he says it gives hope to other families. It's almost like playing the lottery having a decision of do we have a child where this could potentially happen to them. For them to have an opportunity to basically make that choice as to whether or not they want to have a family and they want to have a healthy family, to us that's the most satisfying thing. It won't make a difference for Maeve, um, but Maeve will now have made a difference for other families in future. That's Maeve's father, Joel Hood, ending that story from John Daly. Some of the budget nasties are still rising to the surface. Today, the arts community expressed shock at the news that the COVID-19 assistance packages that had been sustaining some parts of the sector during the pandemic will be wound up. Federal spending for arts and culture is set to fall from a billion dollars to just under 800 million, with more cuts due over the next couple of years. Industry leaders say the COVID support is being ripped away at an especially difficult time, but they're even more alarmed at the cuts to regional and community arts and major cultural institutions. Here's Emily Burke. Melbourne musician Nat Barsh has spent much of the past two years at home. After COVID hit, it was also the impact on live performances. And so touring and live shows was the main way that artists were still able to earn an income. So the combination of those two um, has been a bit of a big impact on us, really. Her latest composition called Busy Quiet is a dedication to women and musicians who've lived through the pandemic lockdowns. I kind of buried myself in composition as a way of coping with the changes that we were facing. Did that generate much income for you? Small amounts without government funding, as there is for most industries in the country. Um, it's really hard to um, innovate and develop your craft and go to that next level and reach international markets or even a national market. So it's, it's been essential for me. Lockdown life might be over, but the arts sector is still struggling and the federal government's budget offers little good news for the arts. The government has cut arts and culture funding by 20% 
next year. So we're going from 1 billion in the current year to only 800 million next year and then they're going to cut it again. Alison Pennington is a senior economist at the Australia Institute who co-authored a report called Creativity in Crisis, rebooting Australia's art sector after COVID. This is a budget that is has no interest in, in rebuilding the arts and culture sector in Australia. There are modest increases to the Australia Council and to Indigenous arts, but there are cuts to regional arts, community broadcasting, film and television and the National Gallery and National Library. The budget does deliver an extra top-up and final $20 million payment to the RISE program, which has been a financial lifeline for many arts festivals and companies. It's not enough. Penelope Benton is the Executive Director of the National Association for the Visual Arts. It's a great opportunity for the government to announce something. The development of a national cultural plan, of course, there was nothing. Matt Dina from the Screen Producers Association says the government missed an opportunity to help expand the industry at a time when the appetite for Australian content is growing. We were hoping for different policy framework announcements that could have come into this budget, but nothing particularly to do with funding. And what we saw was a removal of support that had been provided to Screen Australia that took its funding backwards, but back to pre-pandemic levels. And that was not unexpected, um, but it also was potentially a little disappointing in that one of the things that will assist our industry to grow will be greater support for institutions like Screen Australia. And I think there's an opportunity to grow Screen Australia in light of the fact that the sector's growing. Ben Eltham is lecturer in creative industries at Monash University. It's actually bigger than the dollars and cents. It's about who we are as people. We're a rich country. We can afford to support the arts and culture to a much more meaningful degree than we do currently. The Federal Arts Minister, Paul Fletcher, says the inclusion in the budget of an extra $20 million in the RISE scheme is unparalleled funding, which brings the Morrison government's creative economy support package to $500 million. He says arts funding by the Morrison government this year stands at more than a billion dollars, a record level of funding under any federal government, Liberal or Labor. Emily Burke with that report. That's PM for this Thursday. I'm David Lipson. Thanks for your company. Samantha Donovan will be with you for more PM tomorrow evening. Good night.